I've had a lot of difficulty um, this week because the text that I want to preach from is all over Scripture, and so trying to narrow it down to one text has been difficult. Uh, if you look in your bulletins, you'll see that it says that my text is 1 Corinthians 1, 17 to 31, and I'd really like to read that, and I might. But as I think about it, I think I've really got to stick to the text that is most of the sermon, and so I'm going to ask you to turn to Isaiah chapter 53. And just a few comments before we read our text Isaiah is a chapter, I mean, a book of prophecy. Isaiah is a prophet, and it gets, the book gets its name from the, the man who wrote it. And Isaiah, as all the prophets, had a very, very sad job to do. Um, Isaiah was not uh, loved and accepted and listened to and honored and... You know, every day in every way, the world did not get better and better for Isaiah. Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet, and you all know what happened to the last prophet, John the Baptist. He lost his head. And by that, I don't mean he went berserk. Um, and it's very interesting that the reason John the Baptist was beheaded was because he confronted whom? The church? No, because he confronted the civil authority. And not a civil authority who made public claims to be following God. There's some discussion that Herod might in fact have been uh, a seeker after the Jewish faith and somewhat related to it. But nevertheless, he was a civic authority. And so this is the life of prophets. And when we read the book of Isaiah and we see what Isaiah is presenting, more and more as the book goes along, a theme develops which... Uh, scholars of Scripture refer to this theme as the suffering servant. Now, that doesn't sound obnoxious to you. Um, we, don't, we don't withdraw from that. We don't pull back from that and look at that as something that's repulsive to us, really. Um, because today, uh, there's a lot of talk people are really enamored with and really like discussions of servant leaders. Now, I'm really skeptical of any fad in such an evil day, and I think that most of the discussion of servant leaders really amounts to people saying they want leaders who will um, not uh, exercise authority, that that's really the substructure behind all of the managerial papers and business school uh, classes that have focused on servant leaders. Um, we hate authority in our culture. And so a servant leader, the subtext often is that a servant leader doesn't ever exercise authority, but only mercy and coming alongside of and never discipline, never authority. And so I think we have to take this with, with a grain of salt. But I would say this to you. If we really do love servant leaders in our culture and we really are using the words in an honest way, um, then we should love Jesus. Because Jesus is the only true servant leader that the world has ever known. Um, but as we read our text, we're going to see that Jesus was anything but loved and accepted. And so this theme is developing about the servant, the suffering servant, the despised servant, 
Isaiah the prophet is pointing forward and he's pointing to the coming Messiah. And he's saying that the Messiah is not going to be pomp and circumstance, but is going to be a man who serves rather than being served and who suffers. Now, in the middle of the development of this theme in the prophet Isaiah, we come to this maybe the best known of all the Old Testament texts, at least in the Christian church. Isaiah 53, I'm going to read verses 1 to 6. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Now, the prophet Isaiah begins his messianic prophecy with a question, who has believed our message? And this is a rhetorical question. He's not asking He's not looking. He's not asking for a show of hands. But he is making a statement. And his statement is, no one has believed our message. Who's believed our message? Sent to the people of God as a preacher, much as God continues to send preachers to us today, Isaiah speaks for preachers everywhere and in all times, lamenting how few and how far between are the men and women that believe God's message given to preachers to proclaim. As it is in our evil day, so it was in the day of Isaiah. Few listen and fewer still believe. First, there are many that are completely disinterested in listening to the Word of God proclaimed, instead choosing to watch, depending on your class, the NASCAR race, or to read the Sunday edition of the New York Times, rather than to attend worship services where God is proclaimed and His Word. But among those who do attend public worship services, few choose churches where the true doctrine of Scripture is preached rather than a humanistic message of human potentiality. Now, among those 
who do choose a God-honoring and a God-listening church where the Holy Scriptures are what is preached instead of Robert Frost or psychology or human potentiality, even in God-fearing and God-honoring and Bible-preaching churches, few there be who come with tender hearts, humble and prepared to be taught and to repent and to believe. How many fail due to what our Lord warned us of, the thinness of the soil, the noonday heat, the birds circling, or the deceitfulness of wealth. In fact, our Lord echoes what the prophet Isaiah says when our Lord here on earth told the parable of the seed and the sower. I'm going to read it from Luke 8. He says, our Lord, the sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell beside the road, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky soil, and as soon as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. Other seed fell into the good soil and grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as great. And as he said these things, he, Jesus, would call out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, count them. How many of the seeds produce fruit? Half? Well, the story continues with this. It says, His disciples began questioning Him as to what His parable meant. And He said, To you, speaking to His disciples, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now, the parable is this. The seed is the Word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard, and then the devil comes and takes away the Word from their heart so that they will not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the Word with joy, and these have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation fall away. The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. But the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. Okay, so some was trampled. Some withered away for lack of moisture. Some was choked out by thorns. And some fell into good soil and produced a crop. So what? Approximately 25 of the 100% listens and by faith believes and produces fruit. And so we see today that even among Bible-believing churches, where the true God is called upon, the name of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is honored, the Word of God is what is preached. Even where the true Word of God is preached, Jesus shows us that approximately, what, 25%, now Jesus wasn't giving us this story so that we would come up with a percent 
And yet we see that it's the minority, don't we? Limiting ourselves to churches where the Word of God is honored as Jesus our Lord honored that Word when He was here on earth, all right? Limiting ourselves to such churches, we see the truth of Jesus' warning of the constant presence and work of the devil, of the lack of firm roots, of the superficiality and temporary nature of the conversions here today and gone tomorrow, of those who fall away in times of temptation, of the seductiveness of worries and riches and pleasures which pull us away from the truth of God. And this is assuming that the word that goes out is faithful. What of preachers who preach unfaithfully, adding to the equation by their own faithlessness? They preach lies. They preach self-help sermons. They preach sentimental mush. They preach the health and wealth gospel. They preach patriotic nationalism. So you take those who stay home with the New York Times or NASCAR. You take those who intentionally choose churches which have nothing to do with God and the fear of God, but rather worship human potentiality and education. You take those who go to church but intentionally choose churches where they will get week after week how to love yourself and your children and how to discipline your children and have a good marriage. You take churches who preach a little bit of Scripture, but mostly about how you can be healthy and wealthy if you give seed faith. All right? You take those who go to true churches but have pastors who are always pulling their punches all right? and sort of doing a, now you see it, now you don't. Look at the birdie routine. Okay? Then you take churches where the Word of God is preached faithfully and you begin to number those who are in those churches hearing the true Word of God, and what are your percentages? Your percentages are bleak. Now, I hope you're hearing this with a soft heart. I am. I hope you're not sitting there thinking, well, yeah, my husband, he's got a hard heart. I hope you're seeing your hard heart. I hope every single person here who understands this teaching of Scripture, is looking inside yourself and saying, as the disciples constantly said to Jesus, what? Some of you know your Bibles. What did they say to Jesus all the time? Lord, who then can be saved? What hope is there? I mean, this is the response of all godly people to hearing and reading and, and, and to sitting under the proclamation of the Word of God. Who then can be saved? What was the response of the first sermon in the Christian church? As Paul or Peter got done preaching on the day of Pentecost, what did they say? What did they say? All the Jews present said what? They said, how then shall we be saved? What must we do? What did the Philippian jailer and all his Roman might and power and authority do? When the jail shook... And everybody was free to go. And his life was on the long line. What did he do? It's the response of every person who meets the angel of God. It's to fall on our faces before the living God and say, How can I be saved? It's the response of every honest person who has spent one moment looking at their hearts as it, they really are. I was reading yesterday a well-known PCA, my own denomination pastor, and 
This pastor is convinced that he understands how to speak to the postmodern world. And he was saying that today you cannot depend upon people knowing that they're sinners or caring about it. And I, I, I completely reject what he says. I, I defy anyone, no matter how far they are from the church of Jesus Christ, to sit under the preaching of the, the Word, no matter how poorly it's done, if it's faithful to the Word of God, and not to sit in their pews or in their chairs or in their cars, it's proclaimed over the radio, and to cry out in their heart, what must I do to be saved? Because this is always the response of sinners to the presence of God and His Word. God is holy, we know that. And we also know that we're wicked. And yes, the law of God must be preached for the conviction of sin. But man is not blind to his predicament. But he's just too proud to accept God's remedy. Jesus, our Lord, many, many, many times emphasizes the resistance, the deafness and the blindness, the hardness of heart that is pervasive in human history. In Matthew 7:13 and 14, our Lord says this. He says, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Now, this is not Jesus speaking on a melancholy day, but it's the witness of all preachers of God's Word through all time. As Isaiah himself put it, who has believed our report? Who has believed our preaching? He isn't asking for a show of hands by those who have believed. He's uttering the truth about the pervasiveness of blind eyes and deaf ears and hard hearts across human history. This same statement of Isaiah is mirrored and quoted in John chapter 12, verses 37 and 38, where we read that though Jesus had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in Him. And then it says the Holy Spirit inspires John to write, This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet who spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Calvin paraphrases Isaiah's statement, putting it this way, nobody will believe these things. Nobody will believe them. Well, next, Isaiah turns to explaining this sad reality. And the first explanation that he gives of this reality, nobody will believe these things, is contained in the second half of verse 1, if you'll look there with me. Isaiah here uses a Hebrew literary device known as parallelism. What we see is the second half of this verse is an elaboration on the first half. 
It is an explanation of the first half. The first half, who has believed our message? The second half, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The second member of the verse echoes the first member of the verse, or the first half of the verse, giving the explanation of what has gone before. The parallel thoughts are this. Believing Isaiah's preaching and having the arm of the Lord revealed... Isaiah is here explaining that the reason that few have believed is that few have had the arm of the Lord revealed to them. Now, what is the meaning of the arm of the Lord? The arm of the Lord is a metaphor for God's power and his strength. And so Isaiah is pointing out that God has shown his might and power to only a few souls. And that's the explanation for only those few souls believing his messengers, the prophets or the preachers. The explanation is not simply that men have refused to believe, although that is true always and everywhere, and they are accountable for that refusal. But the explanation goes on for other reasons. The explanation is, first, that God has not revealed himself in power to them. He has not shown them his mighty arm. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord, the power, the strength, the might of the Lord been revealed? To believe the message of God and to see the strong arm of God are one and the same thing. And both depend upon God revealing himself to us. We can't do it on our own wisdom. We can't do it in our own strength. We cannot do it in our own power. God must reveal himself and his truth to us. Every man who believes does so only because God has revealed himself to him. Every woman who is born again by the Spirit of God has been awakened from spiritual death by the Holy Spirit. It's not because they grow up in a Christian home. It's not because they've chosen a good church. It's not because they've read the right books. It's not because they've kept themselves clean for two weeks and then went to a revival meeting. But it's because God has revealed Himself to them. The Holy Spirit of God has worked in them. We ourselves, separate from the work of God, are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are unable to come to God. We are unable to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ without the arm of the Lord being revealed to us, without the strength of the Holy Spirit working to reveal God's truth to us and to give us faith in that truth. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Has the arm of God's might and power and strength been revealed to you? Have you believed this report? But the explanations of no one believing the report, the preaching, go beyond the fact that the arm of the Lord has not been revealed to them. There is more that the prophet Isaiah says about the rejection of the message of God. And if we look at verse 2, we see... Additional aspects of the reasons many, most, have not believed the message. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. Now, why? how does this explain the rejection of the message and the preaching of God's word? To say that he grew up before him like a tender shoot. And who is before him? And who is he? 
Well, there are many who would say that he is some historical person at the time of Isaiah or somebody that Isaiah knew of and looked back to. But clearly that's not the case. If we move on in the text, we see that we have the clear doctrine of the substitutionary atonement of whoever this man is taking upon himself the sins of the people of God. This is not just a narrative from some point in history where some deluded man thought that he was himself bearing the sins of historical Israel. He grew up before him like a tender shoot. Now you may say, well, grew up is past tense. And so it has to be that we're dealing here with something in the past. But in the Hebrew language... And in the usage of the Old Testament, there's something called the prophetic future, where uh, you speak of things in the past as if they had already come to pass. In other words, when a prophet is caught up in a vision of what God is doing, that prophet can speak of what he sees in the future as if it already happened. And that's what we're dealing with here. He grew up, past tense. He's looking into the future. And the vision of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is so clear to him that he's speaking as if it had already happened. And when it says he grew up before him, it's saying that Jesus, the Messiah, who is to come, grows up before his Father. The hymn refers to the Father God who sent his only begotten Son. And so, as he prophesies about the coming Messiah, what does he say about him? He says, well, he's like a tender shoot. Now, what is a tender shoot? Have any of you gardened? I've gardened. I, when I was in seminary, I did it with my mother because she's, she's like a monster gardener. Um, vegetables and roses and perennials. And if I ever had to move one more iris in my life, I would scream. seemed like every year we spent our lives moving her iris from one place to another, digging them up here, moving them there. You know, she was never satisfied with where her plants were. But we got wonderful food and wonderful roses and all kinds of flowers on the table. And to this day, if I were to choose the thing in America I enjoy the most, I would go um, to Longwood Gardens, uh, created by the DuPonts, um, outside of Philadelphia, and spend springtime there. All right. Now, what does a gardener do? A gardener does many things. They transplant, they fertilize the soil, they protect the roses in the winter, giving them a covering, especially up in Chicago. But one of the main things a gardener does is prune. And what does a gardener prune? A gardener prunes shoots. And when I worked during seminary for the Spaldings in Manchester, um, they had a lot of crabapple trees. And these crabapple trees have been let go for a long time. And so they were gangly and ugly. And so one year I decided that it was time for me to prune the crabapple trees. And uh, you know me. Uh, I don't do anything half-hearted except root out the sin in my life. Uh, And so I I went after the crab apples. And boy, did I prune them. And they were nice when I was done, right? Now, some of you know what happened. Some of you know that when you get aggressive in pruning something that hasn't been pruned for a long time, what does it do but send out millions of little water sprouts of little suckers, okay, tender shoots. Every branch from the very end of the branch the whole way back to the trunk 
had vertical shoots coming up out of it. It was like whatever I had done, I had sown the wind, and now I was reaping the whirlwind. And it did look infinitely uglier than when I started. <laughs> so what did I have to do? I had to go in and I had to begin to prune off all those little, those little shoots that I had created by my stupidity, right? Now, why do you prune shoots on a crab apple or especially on an apple tree? Why do you do it? You do it because you want fruit, because you want the tree strong. But what is the Bible saying about Jesus? He grew up before him like a tender shoot. What Jesus is saying is that when we looked at Jesus, what we saw was a water sprout. We saw a little shoot. We saw something that was going to corrupt the vitality of the tree and its ability to produce fruit. Something ripe for pruning. And then what does it say? It says, and like a root out of dry ground. Now, do roots like dry ground? No, they don't. What's true of dry ground? Well, you can refer to it as hard pan. Roots don't have an easy time when the ground is hard and compacted, do they? Well, that's what Jesus is like. It's telling us that his entire life was a life of struggle, trying to get moisture. What are roots there for? They're to get moisture, right? How successful is a root in dry ground? It's not very successful at all. And so what's Jesus? He's a tender shoot, ready to be nipped. He's a root in dry ground that can't get at moisture. And now you begin to see why the suffering servant was rejected, why the message was rejected, why all through human history, this Messiah is despised and rejected of men. And then it goes on and it gives more reasons. It's not just that he was a tender shoot. It's not just that he was a root out of parched ground. He wasn't a Dutch elm. He wasn't a sequoia. He wasn't a redwood. He was a weak and dirty root. Now, what about his appearance? Well, it says in verse 2, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him. Men did not point at Jesus and say, now there's a man. Jesus did not walk into the Academy Awards ceremony with all the cameras flashing. Jesus didn't have his picture on your computer screen as you tell me you have a crush on him. Okay? There was absolutely nothing about Jesus that would cause you to have a crush on him. He had no form, no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him. And then it says, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. You know, women weren't, you know, daintily, you know, flicking their eyelashes at him, asking him to go into the little uh, photo booth at the mall and have their pictures taken with them. In fact, even men didn't want to be around Jesus. And then it tells us in verse 3 more, it says he was despised and forsaken of men. He wasn't handsome. He wasn't good looking. He wasn't impressive. He wasn't attractive. You know, as I read this and studied it, who could I think of but Terry Schiavo? I mean, what a disgusting and revolting person. 
She was ugly. And she sat there with her head looking like, like some kind of freak of nature. Her head lolling back, not able to control her mouth. She couldn't even talk. Even if people could get past her appearance, she couldn't say any sweet nothing, sweet somethings into her husband's ear. And then the disgusting pro-life people who tried to make her into a human being, all for their own political benefit. I mean, she was rev- revolting. And her picture made us turn away. Now, you all know this is not what I really think about Terry Schiavo. All right? But come on, be honest with yourself. All of America turned away in disgust, even those of us that are pro-life. And we're thankful that that's not how our wife looked and acted. How many of us would have been faithful to Terry Schiavo? Let's be honest, brothers. We condemn Michael. But do you think your wife is convinced that if she got Alzheimer's and stopped recognizing you and became incontinent, that you would be faithful to her to death, let alone if she went in a persistent vegetative state? You take the picture of Terry Schiavo in our nation these last years, and that's what Jesus was like. There was absolutely nothing appealing about him. Men were not attracted to him. He wasn't handsome. He wasn't influential. He wasn't rich. He was a shoot. He was a root and dry ground. He was despised and rejected of men. In other words, it wasn't just that we turned away our faces repulsed by him. That would be better than what happened. We actually opposed him. Now you say, we, what's this we, white man, right? Well, because I can see myself there. I know how I would have responded to Jesus. I never wanted to hang out with the gross people in life. And I still don't. I want the judges and the senators and the kings and the presidents and the named chair professors in my church. Not you. (laughs) I mean, come on, do you want me for a preacher? No, of course not. You wish that you had a preacher who was known. You know, somebody that everybody respected. People weren't just indifferent to Jesus. They didn't just not notice him. They despised him. And you know, this is still true today. There's nobody that's indifferent to Jesus. No one. Down in in Florida, outside of Terry Schiavo's execution chamber... When I would talk to the media and the gloves came off after a couple of minutes, because we were honest with each other, it quickly became clear that it was a spiritual issue and that the thing that really got their goat was that everybody there was there in the name of Jesus Christ. There's no neutrality to Jesus. None. You don't have those who are haters of God, and those who are lovers of God, and the vast majority in the middle who are, you know, sort of open. No. Those who are open despise and reject Jesus Christ. They are principially opposed to Him. 
They hate God. If you are indifferent to Jesus Christ, you despise Him. Sometimes I use this word despise in relationship to other things in life uh, only to indicate someone who does not place proper value on something. And people are always getting confused. Why do you say they despise it? They don't hate it. No. Being indifferent to Jesus Christ is to despise Him. You see, it's not just that they're in a DMZ, a demilitarized zone, where they're sort of maintaining all of their options until the judgment day, and quick, they're going to make a hop into the right option. No. Life is line on line, inch on inch, brick on brick. All right? Life is a steady succession of embracing and loving and believing in Jesus Christ or rejecting and turning away from Him and despising Him. And there's nothing in between those two. You're not on your way to some place which is a vacuum where you can make a choice at the very end of your life. You are building, 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 building. And your foundation is either despising the Son of God who was sent for the forgiveness of your sins. Or it is building on the foundation of love and repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. It's only two options. He was despised and rejected of men. He was a man of sorrows, verse 3, and acquainted with grief. Now, this gets at the nub of the issue. I'm down in Florida... And I remember and I learn again the things I've learned before. And what is it? I learn again that the division in our nation is not between Republicans and Democrats. Who cares? As Samuel Johnson said, why, sir, all schemes of political improvement are laughable things. Or, as Joe Sobrin says, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Fool me three times, I'm a Republican. I mean, who cares? Again and again and again, I would say to the media people who were always acting as if this was just a political battle, I told them, I don't give a rip about politics. What the division of our nation is, is between those who do not despise the suffering servant and therefore embrace suffering in this life and see it as giving dignity to us who minister to the suffering Because as we do it to them, we do it to our Lord Jesus Christ, who Himself was despised and rejected of men, was a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief, and who said, inasmuch as you do it to the least of these, you've done it to me. (laughs) Okay? And those who look on those who are ugly and needy and in a persistent vegetative state and can't see Christ and reject the cross and reject the suffering servant and will have nothing to do with a God who comes and takes upon Himself our sin and our pain and our diseases. That's the division in this world. It has nothing to do with red and blue counties. Exurbs and suburbs and urban areas and the hinterlands. It has nothing to do with that. It is the division between those who love the suffering servant and therefore embrace suffering so that we can fill up the sufferings of our Lord. Those who to live is Christ and to die is gain. Those who are taking up their crosses and following the Lord. And those who will not have a cross except 
for the suffering servant for their ability to place him on that cross and crucify him. And these are, again, the only two options there are for all men across all history. We either see in the Lamb whose blood is shed a picture of the coming Messiah who himself is the Lamb of God, who will suffer and whose blood will be shed for the sake of your sins, or we reject the Lamb who is slain and we reject the Lamb of God who is slain and we reject all lambs today who are slain and we say, I am Tim Bailey. I am master of my fate. I am an American. I am powerful. I am brave. I am woman. Hear me roar! He was despised and he was forsaken and rejected. And he was a man of sorrows and he was acquainted with grief And what did we do? We hid our faces from him. Why? Because we considered him stricken of God, smitten of God. We considered that everything he suffered was because God had placed a curse on him and had turned away. Now, is this true? Yes, God had placed a curse upon him. And God had turned away. You remember on the cross he says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But why? Why did God turn away from him? Was it because he found sin in him? Was it because God is ashamed to call this his son? No. You think God was ashamed of this perfectly obedient and righteous son? No. What was God ashamed of? What did cause God to turn away from this son? What caused God to turn away from this perfectly righteous son was the fact that he bore on himself the sins of the world. What does it say? What does the text say? It says in verse 4, Surely our griefs He Himself bore, and our sorrows He carried. It says, verse 5, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging we are healed. Brothers and sisters, this is the Gospel message. This is the gospel message. The gospel message is that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And that when God, in His loving and mercy, chose to send His Son to be conceived of the Virgin Mary, to be born in a stable, to work with His hands in poverty in Galilee, to live three years with no place to lay his head, with the religious leaders and the civic leaders and his own disciple whom he loved, conspiring to kill him and to silence his righteous and loving voice. This Jesus, as he suffered and then as he died on the cross, did it not because he deserved it, not because his father was ashamed of him, not because he had sinned, 
But he did it so that he could bring many brothers into heaven with him. He was your substitutionary atonement. Now, why is it then that we turn away from him and hide our faces? Why is it that we despise and reject him? There's only one reason, and the reason is that we refuse to bow before God and admit our own sin. And so, we always say about those who are suffering, well, you know, who sent him or his father? We always look at those who have pockmarked faces and, and who have their heads lolling back and are unable to speak and incontinent and those who have Alzheimer's. It's always them and it's them and it's them. And we say in our living wills, if I ever get to that place, I want you to kill me. I want you to take away my food and water so I die because a life like that is so humiliating that I don't ever want to have such a life. And why? Why? Because in our pomp and circumstance, we reject every bit of suffering, every bit of humiliation, anything that points to the nature of our hearts. I mean, do you understand this? This is why America hates people that are PVS. This is why America hates unborn children who are coming at an inconvenient time. This is why America hates newborn children who are Down syndrome or have spina bifida and they leave them in some uh, death house in Oklahoma so that they'll expire over time without treatment. America is the home of the strong and the brave. America has rejected Jesus Christ. Don't let the statistics fool you. Yes, America is filled with people who claim that they love Jesus Christ. But when you look at their response to suffering and to shame and to ugliness and to brokenness and to sickness and to the true preaching of the Word of God, you see the truth about America. America is idolatrous. America has made a God out of her own hands, and the God is sleek and vital and powerful and has great influence in politics and is very content to go to Disney World. All right? This is the American God. But the true God is the one whose son was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. The man whom we hid our faces from and considered him stricken of God, smitten by God, and afflicted by God. Now, brothers and sisters, what think you of Jesus? What do you believe about Jesus? And the minute I ask that, you realize what I'm saying is, are you self-aware? Do you see your sin? Do you see that in the presence of a holy God, you must be consumed? That's always the question when it comes to Jesus. That's always the question when it comes to going to church, to praying, to having devotions, to witnessing to Jesus Christ. The question is always, are you in the presence of a holy God fully acknowledging your brokenness, that you're dead in trespasses and sins, and that Jesus is your only hope. That's the gospel. The gospel isn't that you're a publican. 
The gospel isn't that you have the right position on Terry Schiavo. The gospel isn't that you're against abortion. The gospel isn't that you're a capitalist. The gospel isn't that you're white. The gospel isn't that you speak English and that you use a computer and that you know what the Internet is. The gospel isn't that you like Jim Dobson. The gospel is that you will not turn your face away from the living God. When He comes to you in the form of one who is ugly, who is like a root and dry ground, who suffers, who is humiliated, and who men absolutely despise. The Gospel is that you look at Him and realize that every single one of His sufferings is for you. Is His love, is His obedience to His Father in bearing the sins of the world. That's the gospel. The gospel is when instead of being scandalized that our Jewish Messiah wasn't a military ruler who came and whooped up on the Romans and gave us independence, we are completely embracing that knowing that there's something eternally more important than that the United States or the Roman Empire maintains its position in the world or that any of the oppressed people groups under their empire are able to to escape the humiliation of being under their empire. If Jesus was the Messiah who came to Iraq, He would not liberate Iraq from the United States of America because His kingdom is not of this world. Okay, Jesus would come to them still as a suffering servant who bears on Himself the sins of the world. And so what think you of this suffering servant? What do you think of this one who is well acquainted with grief? Is he scandalous to you? Your only two choices are that either he is scandalous to you or you yourself are scandalous to yourself. In other words, either you vomit Jesus or you vomit your own sin and cling to Jesus. That's the gospel. And so I, I plead with you. You know, can you have anything more beautiful than him hanging on the cross bearing your sins? Can you have anything more beautiful than one who ends his life having had nothing but humiliation and suffering his whole life, and at the end of his life, what happens? There he is bearing the sins of the world, and his own father turns away from him. Now, what's wrong with that? And what's there not to love? I keep thinking this. You know, what is there not to love? Is he a threat to you? If he is, it's only because you refuse to face your sin. It's only because you're proud. What is there not to love about Jesus? He's not a threat to any earthly ruler. He's not a threat. Every time you hear the Word of God preached, brothers and sisters, you have a choice. And your choice is to believe in Jesus Christ and to remember that He is the one who said to you, all you who are weary and heavy laden, come to Me. He is the one who said that those who come to Him, He will never cast out. Yes, you're full of sin. So what else is new? Yes, you're proud. 
Yes, you don't have the strength to come, but that's why you ask him to reveal his strong arm to you. Because it's his arm that draws you to himself. Yes, your wife will make fun of you. I know that. And he knows that. But who knows, your wife might be ahead of you coming to him. What is there not to love about this Savior? He commands you, come. And you have everything you need to come. You have the sin that qualifies you for his sacrifice. And so, come already. Come. This is not about me. It's not about your relatives. It's about the living God who sent his son. And so, come already. Come. He'll take you, I promise. sing a hymn that was written by Fanny Crosby and it's a prayer and I'd like you if you're here this morning whatever your situation is I'd like you to pray it along with us as we sing you can sing it quietly if you'd like that's fine Uh, and if you're here this morning and you've listened to what Tim has said and you've listened to what God has said remember that our lives are fleeting Psalm 90 says that we should number our days so that we may present hearts of wisdom before God because our lives go by so fast. And today is the day. Today is the day when we need to pray this prayer and we need to come to Christ. So pray as we sing. Pass me not, O gentle
Have I on earth beside thee? 